0: today who will bring to us a Christian witness and testimony. Mrs. William R. Griffin III is the wife of the son of a very dear friend of mine, and he is also a close and very dear friend. Uh, William R. Griffin II is an officer with the First Union National Bank, and Alice, his wife, is the mother of two children. She is also a uh, a graduate from the University of Alabama in Asheville, they have a wonderful Bible discussion group that I seem to run into someone week after week who gets blessed by attending a Bible discussion group which is often led by her husband. She has given her testimony as a part of the Linton services in her church in Asheville and uh, someone who heard her speak told me, you must get Alice to come out to Montreat and speak didn't take much encouragement. And so I wanted Alice to come and share with us this morning something of her experience with the Lord. Now, Alice, we may. This is what little there is over right here. Now, Jim, you got this thing? We're going to use it. You want to use the lavalier? Okay. I'm going to let you attach it. <laughs> now, you're going to be like. Right. Hunt, or David? I'm not
1: sure about this. Calvin is.
0: Oh, that's great. It is. Yeah, he can crank it up.
1: Okay, is it on? Not. You know, it's a very hard thing to do to try and share something as personal and as emotional a thing as one's faith with others, especially in five minutes. I feel that I have been a Christian all of my life, but for 25 years of my life my relationship with Christ was very different from what it is now. I've always believed that Jesus was God's Son and that he died for me and that my sins were forgiven. And because of that belief, I guess one might say that I was saved. But it was not until about four years ago that I realized for the first time in my life what it was to have a real personal relationship with Jesus Christ, to know him as my Lord, and to know the Holy Spirit, not just as part of the Godhead, but as my strength, my power, my friend, and my comforter. About four years ago, through a close friend, I began attending a Bible study to which she belonged, and I realized that even though I had a happy marriage and two beautiful children, a lovely home, and many friends, that I had a void down deep inside, and I knew that that void not be filled by friends, by money, by clubs, community work, or material things. I knew that Jesus was there for me if I would just give myself to him. Well, that is what I did, and he has never let me down in being able to meet my every need. You know, many of us go through life feeling that if we give ourselves completely to Christ, that we're going to have to give up a lot of things that we don't want to. But instead of giving up a lot, we gain everything. All of us here have times and things in our life which we would like to take a huge eraser and just wipe away parts of. For me, some of those times that I would like to erase parts of would be my college years. Oh, I had a good time all right. But somehow between all the excitement of college, sorority life, and football games, especially at a school like the University of Alabama, and a fellow that I was very much in love with, whom I am now married to, there seemed to be little time in my life left for Christ. And I found myself drifting further and further down a road that only took me away from Christ instead of to Him. And because of this, I became a person that was caught up in my own world and the things of that world that I thought would make me happy. I realize now that I would not need that eraser if I had been sharing my life with Christ. The wonderful thing is that Christ becomes that eraser for us. He promises, Behold, I make all things new. He has kept this promise in my life. The Holy Spirit has made changes in me and in my life that I could never have done myself. He is the joy of our home. He surrounds me with peace and love, and he's with me in every situation that I face. He's not only my Lord and my Master, but he's my friend. You know, there's a very special picture that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. It's a picture of Christ knocking on a huge door. And this door represents the door of our hearts. Christ is always knocking on the door of our hearts if we will just open that door and let him in. The next time you see that picture, I'd like for you to look at that door because there's something very special about it. On the side of the door where Jesus is standing, there's no handle because the only way that Jesus can ever come into the door of our hearts is if we open that door to him ourselves. Now as I pray a prayer with you, I'd like to ask each one of you to pray along with me in your hearts. O oh Holy Spirit of God, come into my heart and fill me. I open the windows of my soul to let thee in. I surrender my whole self to thee. Come and possess me and fill me with thy life in truth. I offer to thee the one thing, I really possess, my capacity for being filled by Thee. Of myself, I am an empty vessel. Fill me that I may live the life of spirit, the life of beauty and love, the life of truth and goodness, the life of wisdom and strength, and guide me today in all things. Guide me to the people I should meet or help, to the circumstances in which I can best serve Thee whether by my actions or by my suffering. But above all, may Christ to be formed in me, that I may dethrone self in my heart and make him king so that he abides in me and I in him forever. Amen.
0: Our scripture lesson is taken from the gospel according to John, I will begin to read at verse 28 and I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. I noticed that Alice had that Bible a while ago and it's just about as big as she is. This is verse 28, chapter 18, the gospel of John. They led Jesus therefore from Caiaphas into the praetorium And it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium in order that they might not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Pilate therefore went out to them and he said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Pilate therefore said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law." The Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death, that the word of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he had spoken, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Pilate therefore entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus, and said to him, You are the king of the Jews. Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative? Or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you up to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Pilate therefore said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews, and he said to them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should uh, set free someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish that I release for you the king of the Jews? Therefore they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him, And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him blows in the face. And Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus, therefore, came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When therefore the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. When Pilate therefore heard this statement, he was the more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and he said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate therefore said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard these words, He brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. And he said again to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out to him, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. And so then he delivered them up to be crucified. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. In 1961, an Italian architect or archaeologist was digging in some ruins near Caesarea. He came upon a stone that bore an inscription that had the name of Pontius Pilate on it. One of the greatest authorities on Pilate is a man by the name of Paul L. Meyer. This is the best of the historical novels on any character in the Bible I have ever read. It's a very interesting book because he holds so strictly to what is revealed in Scripture and because he's been so scrupulously honest in reconstructing the things which he has been able to learn from the culture of that day. Pilate has always fascinated me because of his position as a politician. And last Sunday when we were studying about Peter, all of us can identify with someone as Impetuous and as impulsive as Peter is, Peter's warm heart and big mouth often got him into trouble. But that is by no means the worst kind of personality to have. The worst is to have a cold heart. Because when a person becomes older, he can sometimes become more security conscious and more callous, And grow cold and be hard to move. And that person is far more difficult to deal with than the impetuous and the impulsive ones. Now, when we come to this Roman governor, we find that Jesus met him early that Friday morning on which he was crucified. It's interesting that he is the first of the really big political figures or military figures that Jesus had had any contact with. Jesus lived in the country rural region called Galilee. John the Baptist had had some contact with Herod, who ruled over one quarter of this area. But Jesus had had no contact with any big political figure at all. I am sure that Pilate knew something about him because he made it his business to know everything he could about the people that he had been sent to govern over. The particular district over which he was governor was not a post that was much sought after except as a stepping stone that might lead to something else. And there had been many complaints about Pilate the one who had been the governor before Pilate came there had followed Rome's usual custom of being tolerant of their subjected people's religion. And because the Jews had such absolute abhorrence of idolatry, and because by this time the Roman emperor was beginning to be worshipped as a god, nothing was more abhorrent to a Jew in seeking to bow to any animal or figure or person as a god. And while the Roman standards had their eagles and also little images of the emperor, there had been a special exception made over this area where Pilate came so that these people might practice their religion without being bothered by the Roman government. But when Pilate came in, he did a particularly stupid thing. He had these insignias, the standards with the small images of the emperor and the eagles that represented the empire, erected in the precincts of the temple itself in Jerusalem. And he had it done at night so that the next morning when the Jews awakened and saw it, they were scandalized and horrified by what they had seen. The Sanhedrin led a demonstration of some 7,000 all the way from Jerusalem to Caesarea, where the Roman governor's palace was, to protest. They fasted and they prayed. Pilate, still stubborn, Determined that he would subject these people by having some of his soldiers put on civilian-type clothing and mingling in amongst them to take knives and at a given point kill all these 7,000 Jews if they did not submit to what he had told them to do. But when the moment came to kill them, The Jews simply prostrated themselves on the ground and said that they would die before they would give up their religion. And even Pilate himself could not give the command to have all 7,000 of them put to death. And so he had to take down the images and the standards that had been erected. Well, this seethed in the minds and the hearts of the Jews. He wanted to take the temple money which had been given like collection plate money to God and build an aqueduct with it to supply a water system for Jerusalem. And there was a protest over this. And so he did not stand in good favor with these people. And this Roman governor, ambitious, well-trained, comes face to face this morning with these Jews who come into his presence, bringing Jesus of Nazareth in order that he might be judged. They had arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane with the temple police, but they did not have it in their authority to put any man to death. And so they brought Jesus to Pilate for that purpose. Jesus had one time commented when he was commending John the Baptist that those who live in king's houses wear soft clothing. The moral texture and fiber of Pilate was soft. It had been made soft because he had compromised again and again with his conscience. In order to gain more power and more prestige. And so when Jesus is brought into his presence, he is irritated by the Jews. But he is also concerned about his own position and authority. And he doesn't quite know what to do. His wife had had a terrible dream. Maybe she had dreamed that even Pilate himself had been crucified. Maybe she had been on the fringe of some crowd and had heard Jesus preach. Maybe she had seen some leper made clean, some blind person to see again, some lame person able to walk. At least she knew enough about him to know that he was no insurrectionist who posed any threat to Rome in the sense of overthrowing them by force of arms. And so when the Jews came and awakened Pilate, he was angry. He was angry because he didn't like them to begin with. He was in Jerusalem only because it was the festival of the Passover. And he also knew enough about politics and politicians and people to know that the person that they were bringing in was not guilty of the crimes that they had against him to further insult him. The Jews would not come into the palace proper because that would defile them so that they couldn't eat the Passover feast. So they asked that Pilate come out to meet them. Well, you can imagine how this went over with Pilate. He didn't want to do it, but he had his chair of judgment moved out, and they brought Jesus into his presence. Pilate listened to the litany of lies that were recited and the twisted words of those who were the informants and the witnesses that had been brought together by the high priests. They said such things as, this man forbade paying taxes to Caesar. See how their lie is tailored to be just the thing that might make a Roman give an unfavorable verdict against Jesus. Well, Pilate knew how much they thought about paying taxes, and he really didn't believe that. And then they began to bring up other things, and Pilate just looked at his prisoner, and he could see in him something that he had never seen in any other person in all of his life. He asks him questions, and the questions that he asks him are very interesting, he asked him if he is supposed to by Roman law three times if he is guilty of the crime which they charge against him in each time. The answer is no. He asked him if he were king of the Jews. He says he is king of the Jews. But that's no crime as far as Rome is concerned and especially since his kingdom is not of this world. Then he is amazed that he doesn't defend himself. Jesus told him that he had been born into the world to bear a testimony to truth. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? And Jesus answered, You say I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Every one that is of the truth heareth my voice. And then Pilate makes his famous statement with the little touch of cynicism in it. What is truth? But he realizes that this man poses no threat to him. Someone then speaks of him as a Galilean, as a person who has stirred up trouble in Galilee. This makes him think about Herod, and so he thinks he will be rid of Jesus by sending him off to Herod. And he sends Jesus away to Herod, the same Herod whose father had been responsible for the death of the innocents at the time Jesus was born, the same Herod who had put John the Baptist to death he sent him over to be judged by him. It was a sort of a cheap political trick. They had not been friends and had been unable to get along and quarreled about jurisdiction, and so Pilate thought, I might as well let him judge this prisoner since he says he's from Galilee anyway. And so he sends him over to Herod. But Herod does not give a verdict against Jesus. We'll look at him in just a moment. And he comes back again to Pilate. So Pilate is forced now to make a decision. And this is the point. All of us are forced to make some decision about Jesus Christ. Matthew tells us that when Pilate came out on the balcony, he shouted to the people, when they demanded that Barabbas be set free, Pilate shouted, What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? Jesus was a problem to him. What would he do with Jesus? And that question has come down to us through the ages. What will we do with Jesus? Strange the way God's providence works. A billion times a week Pilate's name is spoken by Christians who speak of one who was conceived of the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary and suffered under Pontius Pilate. He is enshrined forever in the memory of men because he stood for that time in the presence or or because Jesus stood in his presence And the problem was what shall I do with Jesus? One day Pilate will stand before Jesus and the question then will be what will Jesus do with me? And that's the question that each one of us has to answer. Will we simply look upon him as a figure in a Sunday school book? Or will we really have this man to reign over us and to determine what our value system shall be and what we will do with our lives. When Jesus saw Pilate, he did not meet a moral monster. He met in him what he meets in many people still, a life weakened by the love of popularity and the habit of moving along the line of least resistance. And by the tacit consideration of one's own safety first, by the inability to face what is unpleasant. We may hate personal sacrifice, we may contrive to evade duty on a small scale, but this self indulgence will make us slip from one deception to another until we are incapable of making the right decision. He said to those, to Jesus, Don't you know? that I have the power to crucify you or the power to set you free. Legally, he did have that power. But morally, he did not have that power. And Ananias, one of those people who delivered Jesus up to him, according to Paul Meyer, knew exactly what Pilate would be thinking. When Pilate had been given his governorship, it was the way with politicians then as it is now to give you cufflinks or bracelets or some little memento of how great they are and how wonderful you're blessed by knowing them. And so uh, Pilate had given a ring, had been given a ring by Caesar. And on the ring it said, Caesar's friend." And Ananias, when Pilate was ready to set Jesus free, and after his wife had warned him, and after he knew in his own soul Jesus should be set free, Ananias said, If you set this man free, you're not Caesar's friend. And Pilate looked at his ring. And then he thought, I'll lose my retirement, I'll lose my position. So what? Let him be crucified. And so Jesus was led out to be crucified. His sense of duty and his better mind, all of these had to be cast aside when he had to make a decision that cost him personally. And we have to watch that same compromising instinct today. Now swiftly I can deal with the other three men. He went over to Herod. Herod was a Jew, a half-breed. Herod would have known about the prophecies in the Old Testament. Herod had heard about the miracles that Jesus had done and had heard the preaching of John the Baptist. But Herod was a dissolute sensualist. He was like the secular man of today who sits back in majestic inactivity and watches these weird religious people and takes notes on what they do and thinks, isn't it interesting and odd that these people are so caught up in religion? And they'll say, oh, you're into Christ, I understand. Or you're into the Bible. Or he's into the Holy Spirit. Or he's into something else. And they write it all up. They're detached from it. So Herod wanted to see Jesus. He was desirous to see some miracle performed by him. Jesus came into the presence of Herod, and Herod must have looked at him and said, You know, I've heard about you. John told about your even raising a man that was dead. That you've made blind people see. That you've walked on water and stopped the storm. Let me see some miracles. Just, just pull your hands out of those manacles that are on your wrist. Gone. Jesus never said one syllable to him. He simply looked at him, And then the Jews said, well, you can see he's a fake, he's not doing any miracles. Jesus will never do any miracle to pander to anyone like this. It's true in the realm of knowledge that you really don't know anything until you have to know it. And you really will not know anything about Jesus until you have to know it. Until you want the forgiveness of your sins more than you want anything else in all the world. Until you want the presence of a living God who is the resurrection and the life. You'll never be willing to pay the price. And you will not allow him to rule over you. But he won't entertain you. He won't be a magician, a conjurer. And so, Herod has his soldiers set Jesus in array in a mock robe and sends him right back to Pilate again. And then, of course, Pilate handed down the decision to be crucified, and Jesus goes out on the Via Dolorosa, the way of sorrow. And there is a man there, a black man from Cyrene, North Africa. Probably a proselyte and a man we believe to have become a Christian because his name is listed in the end of the Gospel according to Mark along with Alexander and Rufus and is referred to again in the Book of Romans. And this man, Simon of Cyrene, never realized what was going to happen to him that day. I remember years ago, going one time to make a prayer in Washington. In the, I sat in it just outside the Senate chambers, and the chaplain spoke to me about the day that Perry, Harry Truman had become president. I was reminded again last week of a letter that Harry Truman, in his folksy way, had written to his mother on that April day when Franklin Roosevelt died he said I was summoned to the White House to see the president when I got to the White House I found out that I was the president Simon of Cyrene had no intention of becoming what he became that day he he got caught in the crowd and they realized he was a black man anyway that he was a stranger because of his clothing and when Jesus stumbled and fell beneath the weight of his cross a Roman soldier took the flat part of his sword and slapped him on the shoulder with it and said hey you blackie pick it up and he had to pick up the cross he was conscripted. Conscripted the word they're compelled, he could be ordered to do it, and so he had to pick up the heavy part of the cross and to bear it. You ever had to do something you didn't want to do and then found out that it became the greatest blessing in all your life? That's what happened to Simon of Cyrene. He did not want to pick up that cross with all that bunch of people screaming and spitting and snarling. But he picked it up. And he climbed all the way up Skull Hill with it. And he was up real close when they nailed Jesus to the cross along with two other thieves. And when they took that cross and dropped it with a thud into the hole that had been placed for it, And he saw the pain and the suffering and heard those unbelievable words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Simon of Cyrene realized that this must be the Messiah. And later, when the resurrection comes and Pentecost comes, we know that people from Cyrene are converted. And so as the result of doing something he didn't want to do. He became a Christian that day. It was a big surprise to him. Maybe it's a big surprise to you. You come to a service you don't want to come to. The Lord speaks to you. You feel his presence. You're willing to accept it. You're willing to let him rule over your life. Simon of Cyrene did that that day. And then that last man, the thief, that was nailed there. There were two thieves nailed on the cross beside Jesus. One thief turned to him and said, If you are the Son of God, then get us off these things. Do something. And the other thief had been impressed with Jesus. And he turned and chided the first thief and said, Leave him alone. You suffer what you deserve and so do I. But this man has done nothing amiss. And deep down in his soul he knew that Jesus was who he claimed to be. The Son of God. And so he uses the word Lord. Lord, remember me. Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Some lady wrote a letter to a Bible teacher and said to him, what good did the thief on the cross do? He lived up his life the way he wanted to, and then he blew it out like a candle and let the smoke come up in God's face. And the answer came back that he had probably won more people to Jesus Christ than any other man in the Gospels. Because he tells us that there is hope. His hands were nailed on the cross and he couldn't do anything, any works for the Lord. His feet were nailed to a cross and he couldn't run any errands for the Lord. All that he could do was say, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. He could read his title clear. He met Jesus that day and he was saved. Two big important people, one named Pilate and one named Herod, neither of them come under the Lordship of Christ. Two other people, a black man who has to be a servant and a bandit nailed on a piece of wood by Jesus, become believers. Strange. How God works, isn't it? The surprises are there. I had walked life's way with an easy tread that followed where comforts and pleasures led until one day in a quiet place I met the master face to face. I reared my castles and built them high till their towers touched the blue of the sky. I vowed to rule with an iron mace when I met my master face to face. I met him and knew him and blushed to see that his eyes filled with pity were fixed on me. I faltered and fell at his feet that day, and my castles melted and vanished away. They melted and vanished, and in their place, naught else could I see but my master's face. And I cried aloud, O make me meet, to follow the steps of thy wounded feet. My care is now for the souls of men. I lost my life to find it again. Ere since one day, in a quiet place, I met my master face to face. The biggest miracle in the Bible is the miracle of conversion. Let us stand. we will omit the last hymn, let us bow in prayer. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, let me cause this to be an invitation to you to meet your Master face to face, to give as much of yourself as you know how to give to as much of Him as you understand. And to realize that you can walk away from this place today with a desire in your heart that hungers and thirsts after Him, that will be satisfied and will be filled. That He will take you from where you are, just as you are, and make you what you ought to be. Now let us pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love that you have shown us from our blessed Savior's death upon the cross. We thank you that he gave a good confession before Pilate. We thank you that he stood firm before Herod. We bless you that Simon of Cyrene could see in him that which meant a brand new life for him. And we thank you that the thief on the cross could go home to paradise with him because of the great wideness of your mercy and love. Help us to know that these acts of grace mean that none of us need ever despair, but that we may know your great love. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and guide, be and abide with us all now and forevermore.